Thanks. Thanks, Wes. It is such a privilege to be here. And I am so grateful to serve a God who has redeemed my life from the pit. Uh, say, I don't know whether you've been keeping up with the wonderful world of pornography, uh, <laughs> but a lot has changed since you got your first peek at a Playboy or Penthouse magazine back in the day. Uh, and it's having profound effects upon our entire culture, both outside and inside of the church. Um, that's how I got my first look, by the way. I was 10 years old when I encountered, as I rounded the corner at a corner grocery store, a Playboy magazine. I'm a Christian kid. My dad's a preacher. I'm the oldest of 10 kids. Lived, uh, grew up in a very devout Christian family. Always knew I was destined for the ministry. Nobody had ever warned me that porn even existed. Uh, sex was not something we ever talked about in our home. That in itself sent a very powerful message. It's not to be talked about. Nobody had told me, nobody had warned me that every boy eventually sees porn. Every boy instinctively likes porn because it depicts something that we're wired by God to want. I just knew it was bad, didn't know why it was bad. And today, when I talk to college kids and high school kids, I have to make the case that porn is bad. It's no longer generally understood that it's destructive. We could talk for an hour easily about what pornography does to us and has done to us. I think its most pernicious property, though, is this. Pornography offers an imaginary connection to a virtual person or persons, which, if you accept it, begins at that moment to compromise your ability to form and sustain a real relationship with an actual person. Long-term porn use creates an intimacy disorder. I didn't know that. I was 10 years old. My mother had just died. Uh, I was particularly vulnerable. But I felt tremendous guilt. Uh, I felt guilty for having seen it and ashamed of having liked it. So I did what guilt does. I lied and I did what shame does. I hid very successfully. Nobody suspected as the years went by that sweet little Nate Larkin, Saint Nate, my classmates called me, could possibly be developing a porn problem. Uh, well, I wrestled with it privately all through adolescence, uh, got saved and resaved regularly. Uh, made thousands of trips to the altar, most of them without ever leaving my pew. Uh, I was certain that marriage was going to solve it. In college, I decided to, I started rationalizing my porn use a little bit. I told myself that it was time probably to throw off the shackles of an overly puritanical upbringing. I needed to join the modern world. I needed sex education desperately. What better place to get it than porn? I rationalized my porn use for a time as preparation for marriage, unaware that porn was actually poisoning my marriage, creating expectations for marriage that no woman on the planet could ever fulfill. Uh, but I met and married a beautiful woman 
I was unaware that I had been using porn as a stress management tool. As it turns out, uh, marriage is stressful. Uh, and so it was, I was very disappointed when the problem resurfaced. The way I eventually lived with myself was to tell myself that porn was probably my best defense against adultery. I was serious when I pledged to my wife that I would be faithful to her so long as we both shall live. I knew I would never cheat on my wife, unaware that porn was grooming me programming me for a coming day. I actually got my first look at hardcore porn in seminary. <laughs> Ironically, Princeton Seminary uh, organized a field trip for seminarians and spouses if they wanted to go into Times Square in New York City. A group, uh, a trip co-sponsored by the seminary and a group called Women Against Pornography so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. And I thought, this is exactly what I need. I'm a good guy. I don't want to hurt anybody. If I can see how bad it is, I will stop. I brought my wife along. I got my first look at hardcore porn, the, the kind of stuff any unsupervised five-year-old can find in two minutes today on the internet. I saw it for the first time as a married man with my wife sitting beside me in the peep show booth. She put the quarter in. Now, Allie was disgusted by what she saw, and in that moment I was too, but at the same time, it's as though somewhere deep inside me, a door swung open. I was unaware that this form of pornography, these moving images, much more powerful than the static images I'd been using up until that point, wasn't just their explicitness. That was a medium that actually stimulates the deeper parts of the brain that cannot distinguish between virtual experience and actual experience, overwhelms the higher portions of the brain where critical thinking takes place and moral judgments are made. All I know is that a couple of weeks later, I was slipping away from home and from school and driving down into Trenton, New Jersey in search of a source for my new drug because, baby, I had found my drug. I'd never been a drinker, never been a drugger. I had found my drug. I don't know if you know this, but porn actually stimulates the same pleasure centers in the brain that cocaine does. Over time, actually changes the brain in the same way that cocaine does. We can see it now on brain scans. Allie couldn't see a brain scan, my wife Allie, but she, she could see changes in me. She could see me slipping away from her emotionally as I was bonding day after day with ghosts. She didn't know what was wrong. She thought it was her. That sounded like a good explanation to me. I went with that. Uh, still uh, wrestled with uh, porn use. I went through binge and purge cycles. It was on a uh, purge cycle when I wasn't binging that a few years later in South Florida found the courage to plant a church. Now I'm a pastor. 
church can be stressful. I don't know if you know that. Um, <clears throat> three and a half years in, it got worse. It was a Christmas Eve. I was on my way into downtown Fort Lauderdale. We didn't have a church building of our own yet, but we'd borrowed a beautiful sanctuary for a candlelight service. I had to go early to get things set up. Allie would follow with the kids. By now, we had three kids. It's about 5.30 in the afternoon. I'm seasonably cold in South Florida. It's in the mid-50s. And as I get off I-95 to head east on out Broward Boulevard, it starts to rain. Ahead of me, I see a lone female figure walking along the sidewalk. I do what I think is the chivalrous thing to do and pull over to offer her a ride out of the rain. I have no idea what she's doing until she's in the car and propositioning me. And at that point, the programming kicked in. At that point, I didn't even see a person in the car, not somebody's daughter. Never occurred to me in that moment to wonder what would put a young lady on the street on Christmas Eve to sell herself to strangers. I never wondered, does she have a family, parents, boyfriend, husband, child? Pimp? Never thought that. Drug problem? Never thought that. Does she have a name? Completely objectified. That was the worst night I'd ever experienced. Later on in the service <laughs> that I'm leading, in the flickering light of the candles to the sound of the sacred music, looking out at my wife and kids and the people who loved and trusted me, knowing what I'd done, and worse, knowing I was going to do it again. Oh, I, I, I said I wouldn't, I begged I wouldn't, promised I wouldn't, prayed I wouldn't, and I didn't right away, but then I did. I did it over and over and over again. I was very careful. I was never caught, but the stress was enormous, and I despised my own hypocrisy. I woke up on my 30th birthday, five years into ministry, knowing that something had to give. Famous preachers were all over the news with sex scandals of one kind or another. I wasn't famous yet, but I was building a good reputation in South Florida. I knew the story was juicy enough that when they caught me, I'd make the paper. The thought that anybody would ever know was to me just humiliating beyond imagination. I knew I had to either quit the behavior or quit the ministry, and at that point, there was only one thing I could quit. So I retired at the age of 30, went into business, where I had the misfortune to succeed. Uh, now I had far more money than I'd ever made in the ministry uh, and less accountability. And what followed was a very dark dozen years. Reconstructing it later with the help of a sponsor, my best estimate is that I spent $300,000 on pornography and prostitutes. But that's not my great regret. That's just money. I spent my children's childhood 
I spent in all 20 years of my wife's life and 20 years of mine. Trading my birthright day after day for a bowl of beans. But I never missed church. I love church. I love God. St. Nate could live at church. I just couldn't get him to breathe on his own for very long outside the building, and I felt horrible about that. We moved to Franklin, Tennessee in 1998 at the invitation of our oldest son and his wife. They'd moved here and called with the news they were pregnant with our first grandchild. They wanted to know whether we would consider moving to, become to get close to the baby, so we moved here. Frank, it was a lot different then, 1998. And it was shortly after we moved here that, um, that Allie caught me for the first time, uh, looking at porn. Because by now, things had changed. It wasn't uh, adult bookstores anymore. It was, uh, I now had broadband. An endless supply, an endless variety of virtual sex partners delivered free of charge to the uh, privacy and anonymity of my own home. I found it impossible to stay away for very long. And it was after she, <laughs> she caught me one night and she, uh, we had a very long night. I promised to stop. In the end, she forgave me, but a few days later, she found a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain. And this time, she sat me down on the edge of our bed, and she said, I'm done. She said, I still love you, but I don't like you, I don't trust you, I don't respect you, and I don't think you can ever change. Those are the words that saved my life. It was in a desperate attempt to salvage my only real friendship that I finally made it through the doors of a 12-step meeting for sex addicts where I met Jesus. I did not expect that. I remember coming out of that first meeting mad, furious that I had spent a lifetime in church and I'd never been in a room that safe. I'd never heard honesty like that in my life. Never that level of transparency, that much humility, that much empathy. I'd never felt love like that. I'd never heard Jesus like I heard him in that room from a bunch of Samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name. They kept referring to him as a higher power. That experience in 12-step recovery didn't just save my life and save my marriage. It saved me spiritually. I encountered God in a whole new way. It was actually good for me to be deprived of my religious vocabulary for a while, my pat answers that weren't working. And it's amazing how, as my understanding of God changed, the Bible changed. Doors and windows on the gospel that I had never seen. And of course, it helped that I was in a good church hearing the gospel every morning. It's like I was getting the gospel in two languages. I'd hear it on Sunday morning, where I'd get great teaching, and I hear it throughout the week in the basement of the church where I got company and I got coaching. 
I'm so grateful now, and ironically, so is my wife. You know, those first 20 years were hell. But Allie says she'd take them again in a heartbeat to get what we have today. And what I'm most grateful for is that I have brothers. Uh, in 2004, in the company of some other guys that I was walking with by then, we started a group called the Samson Society, a mutual aid society for Christian men, not just for porn and sex addicts. Uh, anybody can come, and we got guys who come for all kinds of reasons, from drugs and alcohol to gambling and gaming and uh, rage and food and work. And <laughs> there are all kinds of ways that we deal with stress that turn out to be destructive to us and to others. Um, I had no intention of joining a group when I first walked through the door. My intention was to set the land speed record for recovery. I'm a smart guy. I've always been a smart guy. I was going to master the material quickly. I was going to get the diploma. I was going to be out the door and forget that this sad chapter of my life had ever happened. I thought sincerely that what I had was an information problem. I'd been searching for years for the final piece of the puzzle, the silver bullet, the key insight, the routine, whatever it was that would make it possible for me finally to overcome this compulsion on my own. I was hopeful that I'd finally found the people who had the secret information. As it turns out, there isn't any secret information. There's wisdom thousands of years old, and I didn't have an information problem. What I had was a relationship problem. I was well known, but nobody knew me. I'd always had a personal relationship with Jesus since I was this high, but I had made the mistake of confusing my personal relationship with a private one, and I had spent years begging God for a private solution to my private problem. As it turns out, while Jesus does offer a personal relationship to every one of his disciples, he's never offered anybody a private one. He first said, follow me to two guys, not just one. Quickly added 10 more to them, had them follow him around together as he taught them over and over the importance of loving one another. As he was preparing to leave at the end of his ministry, he said, guys, I'll be gone soon, but I will still be with you under this condition when two or three of you are gathered in my name. I'll be there. We're told in scripture that all of us are members not of an organization, but of an organism whose members are so closely connected we can only move together. Today I am so grateful to have brothers, friends. Here's what I know. I might feel strong today in resisting porn, Actually, I've discovered that when it comes to addiction, I'm, I'm pretty talented. I'm ambi-addictive. I can find all kinds of ways to escape reality. No matter how strong I may feel today, I'm vulnerable to the perfect storm. There's going to come a time when if I'm alone, I'm going to be overwhelmed, too tired, too afraid, too angry, too something to be able to resist on my own but I am no longer on my own. And my prayer for you, brothers, is that whether it's in the Samson Society or at some other 
a group that you have found uh, 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 your way to, that you've opened yourself to relationship, found a place where you can be completely vulnerable and transparent, where you have men who know you, who have your back, who will tell you the truth. Uh, because I'm convinced that that is God's agenda. I'm so grateful now that he didn't give me a private solution to my private problem. Um, and I understand that that runs counter to his program. Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to each other. We are made in the image of a relational God. And life does not get full until we have relationship. Uh, one of my brothers is this sweet man right here, Dr. Tom Mocha. Many of you know him. He is the executive director of Samson House, which is the nonprofit that supports the growth and health of the Samson Society. And I'll turn it over to Tom. Well, I'm, uh, I'm batting clean up here. So let me just touch on a couple things here. Um, how many of you have seen or heard about the movie um, Sound of Freedom? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Intense movie. I brought my fiance. We both walked out in silence. It is uh, a little bit draining, kind of harsh reality sort of stuff. Um, but it is reality. Uh, the movie is about the supply side of the problem of sexual brokenness. It's about the pornographers, it's about the pedophiles, it's about the, the providers of, of this really terrible worldwide scourge. But Samson Society is all about the demand side. Uh, the supply side wouldn't exist if there wasn't a demand. And if you, if, if you take away all the pedophiles and all the pornographers and there's still demand, somebody will find supply. We deal with the demand side. We deal with, with men that are hurting, and they're looking for, you know, as the, as the song goes, looking for love in all the wrong places. And I just want to tell you a couple things here this morning. Um, uh, when I think about the demand side, I, I think about a, an, a, 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 an event that happened to me in Nigeria. Um, I, was, I was over there for a a particular project, and we were driving through the countryside of Nigeria, Africa, and our host slowed down the van. He said, do you hear that? And we're all listening. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a bell. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they ring the bell in the village when they have electricity. And so everybody from all the fields around go, go into the village and charge their phones because everybody in Africa has a smartphone, sometimes two. Okay. And so he said, look over there. And, and there in the, in, the, in the field was a, a, a Muslim farmer who had, had taken the, the reins. Of, he's behind an ox and a wooden plow. Okay, Mind you, an ox and a wooden plow. He takes the reins off. He wraps it around the handle and lifts up his robes and is running through the, the, the field. And he gets into town with all, everybody else. It used to be people would gather at noontime for you know, the well and drink water. Now they come into town and they hook up their phones. 
and they have octopus chargers, superchargers, and everybody hooks up their phones, and then they stand around and they drink coffee and tea and chat it up until the phones are ready, and then they pull their phones off and go back to work, okay? So he goes back to work, and he plows a crooked row. Because now he's behind his ox and wooden plow, but he's looking at porn. And that's a common phrase in Africa when a, when a man is hooked, and now more and more women, is hooked on porn. They simply say, oh, he's plowing a crooked row. Yeah, it's worldwide, guys. I, it is absolutely worldwide. It's every single country. It's every single culture. It's every language. Samson Society does meetings. We, we do over 300 meetings in person every week. We have 62 online meetings every week. And, and we have men in 101 countries. We do, we do meetings in seven different languages. And there's, we, the only thing holding us back is we just don't have the capacity. The demand for, our, for, for what we offer, which is community and, and recovery, is huge. Uh, just huge. I, 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 uh, I, I think you're probably well aware of this, that, that well, maybe not. It, it, focus on the family. We all remember Focus on the Family. They still exist. They're a wonderful resourcing organization. One of the resources they offer is a, a hotline. It's just for pastors. And pastors can call in to Focus on the Family and, and have an anonymous conversation with someone, and they can share their heart and ask for prayer. You know what the number one request for prayer is from pastors across America? I need help overcoming porn. That's our pastors. Those are the leaders of our churches. It's huge. So, um, I want to. I just want to share one thing in closing. I promise to end on time. Um, I had a, uh, I, I do newcomer meetings. We do a newcomer meeting every day of the week, and I do a couple of them every week. And I, uh, I was, started this newcomer meeting towards the beginning of the meeting, there are introductions, and there was a guy from, uh, from Ghana in Africa, and uh, he said, uh, my, you know, my name is Okono, and uh, I'm not sure why I'm here. Um, I had a dream last night and in my dream, the Lord said to me, Samson, Samson. What, Lord? I don't know what you mean, Samson. He said, I woke up from my dream, and I got on my computer, and I did a Google search, and the first thing that came up, which is a little unusual because that's not our SEO, but still, <laughs> he, he Googled Samson, and up pops Samson Society. He thought, well, how interesting. So he went to our website, and he, and he looked up. Uh, there's a newcomer meeting today, that morning. And so he jumped right on. He, it was like, you know, uh, later on in the day for him, but it was for us, it was morning time, and he jumped right on the meeting. And there he was in the meeting. And I said, well, you know, uh, welcome to Como. I'm glad you're here. That's fantastic. How interesting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all right. The meeting went on, and by the end of the meeting, after we had all shared, and after I had shared the, the, uh, the mission of Samson Society, he, uh, he said, this is why. This is why. I had no idea. This is why. My problem 
is pornography. And God led me to Samson. That's a miraculous thing. You don't have to Google <laughs> to, to find it. God doesn't have to come to you in a dream. We're pretty available, okay? However, I want to end with one simple plea to all of you. Pray, please. Pray for your pastors because they're hiding. A whole lot of them are hiding. Nate said it's a stressful job. I was a pastor for 30 years. It's a stressful job. There's a lot of weight on the shoulders of pastors. And one of the easy ways to deal with that stress is a secret little thing here. And it's devastating men in the pastorate. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your children. And a lot of you, as I look out here, like me, I have eight grandchildren. Pray for your grandchildren because it is like nothing else. It is insidious, it is ubiquitous, and it does not quit. It's always there. Thank you, men. Appreciate it.